This, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The Savior beckons me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The Savior beckons me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Anyone recognize that? You old people, you. <laughs> we used to sing that in our youth group. Youth Praise. Do you remember that book? The green cover one, and then volume two, the orange covered one. You remember it. Surprising. <laughs> it sounds rather twee now, but actually it's expressing something of that very real tension that we all experience or actually ought to experience as Christians. The tension of very much living in this world on the earth now, clearly, physically, and yet at one and the same time, to not feel and be totally at home here, because our home actually has been transferred to heaven. You know, we have these, these somewhat mystical sounding verses in Scripture, for example, you know, that we're now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. But you're seated here in Central Hall, so how can that be? Now, of course, we, you know, we, we, we get to understand that in different ways, but there's a tension involved there about the, the combination of being in this world and yet seeking after, with all our hearts, seeking after the kingdom of God. Isn't that right? Do you find this tension? Actually living in this world and not being corrupted by its values nor crushed by its fears. And that is a real tension for us. It's been a tension for every follower of Jesus from day one until now. Whatever type of culture or society, it was a tension for the believers in Philippi, named after Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Greek. The Great, not the Greek. Well, he was a Greek. Alexander the Great. The Great Greek. It was a tension for them. And Paul wrote the letter we know as Philippians. He wrote this letter to them because they were experiencing this tension. How do we live in a foreign, an alien culture and honor God at the same time? How do we live in that way? And, uh, you know, there is a background to this letter. We heard the original we heard the original, very, very well read original story. Let's hear it for Chicks, please. I did warn him in advance if he was too convincing on the slave girl, we'd have to cast something out along the way. But you're all right. You just about got through that. Okay. So we heard about the original encounter of, 
of Paul and Silas and Luke and others in their first encounter, you know, called over, led by the Holy Spirit with this vision that Paul received of a man from Macedonia. How did he know he was from Macedonia? Did he have a t-shirt on saying, I heart Macedonia or something? You know, but anyway, he was a man from Macedonia. And so they went across first steps for the gospel into the continent of Europe, into Philippi, this strategic city that was actually unique as well because it was a Roman colony, a part of Rome that was separate from Rome in an alien land and an alien culture. More of that in a minute. But the background to the letter that Paul wrote, which is they reckon about 10 years or so after this Acts 16 introduction, the letter written to, to them was to the new church there, the new believers and the new-ish church that he had planted through that um, obedience to God, going there, sharing the gospel, and suffering along the way for Jesus. So these new believers, you know, the most disparate group of people originally, you've got Lydia, the, the, the lady from the Liverpudlian suburb of Thyatira. You've got a slave girl. I mean, it doesn't say specifically that after the demon was cast out of her, she was then a follower of Jesus, but I reckon she was. Wouldn't you be if you'd been set free? And the jailer, this fearful man, feared for his life, understandably. He would have had the chop, literally, if the prisoners had escaped. But he and his household all saved. Those first early believers... And then others besides uh, forming this, this new, growing church. So why is Paul writing to them? Paul himself at this stage is now in prison. They reckon he's writing this. It's not absolutely certain. He's writing it from a, a type of prison somewhere. And it's reckoned most logically that he was writing it from Rome. Um, while under that sort of prison type of house arrest... And um, so he himself is restricted in his movements, deprived of his liberty, uh, and under the watchful guard of, of Roman soldiers all the time. But he has, been, he has received their financial gifts brought from Philippi to Rome in the hands of a trusted brother called Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus has come with the gifts that they've collected because they love Paul. He had after Acts 16, visited on at least one other occasion, possibly more than that as well. So he was a sort of more than just a one-off visitor to the church. He became a father and, uh, and, and partner in the gospel with them all. And he is writing this letter to them. And guess who's taking the letter back to Philippi? But Epaphroditus himself. He's brought the money to, to Paul. Thank you very much. And he's received a letter. Thank you very much. I'll take it back with me. Um, and he's saying thank you. He's saying thank you for it. Thank you for Epaphroditus. And here he is, fit and well now. But he was so seriously ill that he almost died. So, so welcome him back as a trusted, faithful, obedient servant of Christ. And he's writing to them saying, look, I'm sharing the same sort of suffering as you 
are experiencing, living as a stranger and an alien. You know how Peter, the Apostle Peter, describes our sort of lifestyle as Christians now? He calls us, in 1 Peter 2 verse 11, he calls us, all Christians, wherever we live, he calls us temporary residents and foreigners. That's how we're to view our lives now, wherever we live. Southampton, Singapore, or you name it. We are temporary residents and foreigners. This is not our home. Paul says in this letter to Philippians that we are, and the phrase we will see in a minute on the screen, we are citizens of heaven. Citizens of heaven. That's got to mean something. We're living under different values and not controlled by the same fears. We're not corrupted or shouldn't be by the values of this culture, which is alien, nor are we crushed by the fears that we hear day in, day out, particularly at the moment, about the future, whether that's to do with economy, climate, or war, or whatever. Paul writes to them and says, I'm sharing the same suffering as you. And as you share in this suffering for Christ, make sure you live pure lives so that no one else can accuse you be innocent and pure. Shine like stars in a dark universe. Shine out. Point the way to other people. And also amongst yourselves, please make sure that you are growing in love for one another and living in harmony and agreement with one another. You imagine if you were one of two ladies in the church called Euodia or Suntuki. Well, you wouldn't want to be called that anyway, would you? But if you were Euodia or Suntuki... You are recorded for all time through Scripture as being two ladies who have fallen out with each other. What a record to have in history. And what is your fame, excuse me? Uh, I fell out with her. And Paul says to them, he says, Euodia, I plead, I plead with you. Check it out. Uh, check it all out, by the way. Read the whole of Philippians. It's only four chapters. I mean, you've got time every day to read it. What are you waiting for? Please, actually, ahead of the rest of this series, read, reread. Read every day if you can. Read the whole thing, beginning to end. Not just a little bit, the whole thing. Let it wash over you. Let it bless you. Let it encourage you. Let it stir you. Let it challenge you. And Paul says in chapter 4, I plead with you, you Odia and Suntuki, well, you wouldn't be sitting together, would you? You Odia and Suntuki. I plead with you. Well, what does he say? He says, I appeal to you, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. For goodness sake, as it were. Come on, life's too short. You're not to live in this way. Settle it. No one ever said that there would not be conflict in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is how, about, is how we resolve conflicts, how we forgive and love, and how love covers over a multitude of sins. Stop sitting on your high horse. Humble yourself and love each other. That sort of thing. Have the same attitude as Christ had. Being God, He's God. He emptied Himself and became a servant. It all makes sense together. Read the whole lot. He says, live pure lives, be in agreement, and rather than thinking it's all one hardship, 
he says time and time again, the most of any of his epistles, he says in Philippians, he says, and make sure that you always rejoice. Be joyful. Take joy in the Lord. This is not a hard thing. This, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Jesus said, rejoice. There is a power and anointing and release in the joy of the Lord. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit, as we know, is love and then joy. So all of these things come into the letter. As I said, Philippi was a Roman colony. They lived, and the people who lived there really, really valued this fact and um, this privilege. Because they lived, you see, even though it was in Greece, in Macedonia, they lived under Roman laws, and they were exempt from Roman taxes. That's not bad, is it? You live under Roman laws, and you're exempt from Roman taxes. They were a small part of Rome in a foreign land in a strategic position. Now, we are described as being citizens of heaven as opposed to citizens of Rome. Citizens of heaven. We are placed as a small part of heaven in a foreign land in a strategic position. I don't know whether you've ever thought about that personally for yourselves, that where God has placed you and me, not just us as a church, but includes that as well, but where He's placed you and me individually is a strategic position. You may feel like uh, disqualified from great missionary activity or whatever. Not true. Paul was writing from a very, very limited situation, and he said, this has all worked for the good of the gospel. Whether I'm free to travel the Mediterranean preaching the gospel, or whether I'm confined to this house, it has all served to advance the gospel. Because look, even all the guards now, even all of Caesar's guards, the Praetorian guard, have come to know about Christ through me. A strategic position. Where has God placed you? Don't think it'll be better if you were somewhere else. Don't long to have an end to this period or chapter of your life. Rejoice in where God has put you now and think, right, it's strategic for that neighbor that I'm getting to know, those colleagues I work with, my family at the moment, my friends, or whatever the particular circumstances are, they are strategic. You, we, are a small part of heaven in a foreign land placed in a strategic position. Can you say amen to that? Do you believe it? Doesn't sound like it. Do you believe it? Amen. Everything for the Philippian Christians was new. Everything for us as Christians is new. We are told that we have to be born again. We have to experience a new birth in Christ. And if we are in Christ, we are told that we are now a new creation. Everything is new. The old is gone, the new has come. A new birth, a new creation. We have a new family. Look around. You can't choose your family. <laughs> a new family. And praise the Lord, we have a new destiny. A new destiny because of the kingdom of God. 
And all of that is because now we have a new Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, Philippi, going back to Philippi, the Roman colony, Philippi, they loved being Roman citizens. There was no sense of rebellion or dissent. They loved it. They benefited from it. It was a privilege. And therefore, at the time then of the Roman Empire, there was a strong cult called the cult of the emperor. Outside of Rome, whatever man was emperor was seen by Roman citizens as divine, as a god. I don't know why, but in Rome, they waited till they died. They didn't see, see them as divine until they died. A bit like a pope, really, I suppose, being beatified and things like that. Not that the pope's divine. Don't get me wrong. Forget that comment. And so they had to call Caesar, and they wanted to call Caesar Lord. Caesar is Lord. Now, the Christians, who are not citizens of Rome now, Paul tells them, but they're citizens of heaven, have got a new Lord, Jesus. And so, he's given the name that's above every name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, quoting Philippians, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ. This was the unashamed proclamation and testimony and profession of Christians even under the most severe persecution. They would not compromise and say, I'll be a secret Christian and publicly say Caesar is Lord. I will never do that. I will only declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, whatever the cost of that. And there was often a cost, of course there was. Now, they weren't a political or military threat but, they were, but because they would not bow the knee in that way to Caesar, they came under persecution, opposition, attack. They suffered for the gospel. They suffered for Jesus. But Paul is not having any, any truck with, uh, with compromise or truck even with sympathy. He says, this is part of our calling. I re he rejoiced, he says, to suffer, to share in the sufferings of Christ. How about that? To rejoice in it rather than just endure it, to say, thank you, God. Whatever, whatever circumstance in life I face, I will praise your name. Did you hear the jailer, the, them in jail? What were they doing after being, notice, what were they beaten like? They were beaten. How were they beaten? Severely. Severely, yes. <laughs> you read it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Yes, exactly, within an inch of that. Severely, they were severely beaten. They were not lightly beaten. They were severely beaten. And they, at midnight, in the deepest inner cell, in stocks, in chains, were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. <laughs> oh, wow. This mindset, you see, he's... That's why I encourage you, read Philippians. There's a mindset here that we've all got to embrace and uh, hopefully we'll feel challenged and stirred by. The mindset, the way we think. So he says to them, 
this is, this is me introducing it today, all right? I'm going to touch on things that will be covered more deeply, I expect, in the next three sessions as we carry on in, in this teaching series in Philippians. So, so a mindset where he says, for example, in chapter 2, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. In other words, change your way of thinking. Think about things differently. Have the same attitude as Jesus wonder where we align with that, you see. He says to them in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, fix your thoughts. Back to the mindset. Fix your thoughts on what is true, what is honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Make sure your mindset is healthy, set on Christ, and set on what is good. I, I, I love his mindset, though, his own motivation, which we read, for example, in chapter 1, um, verses 21 and 22, uh, 20 and 21, sorry. He says this. Let me just read it to you from the New Living Translation. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Whew. How about that for a mindset? If I'm, li if I'm living, if, I'm a, if God allows me to live and survive this imprisonment, maybe, or, and not be executed, then I'm living for Christ because my deepest, deepest desire, my one aim and motivation above everything else is to honor Christ. And if I live, it is to honor Christ and live for Him. And if I die, it's even better for me. I'm promoted to be with Christ. Now, there have been many Christians down the centuries who have been eager to live but willing to die. Paul stretches it even more and turns it on his head, and he is eager to die but willing to live. That's a mindset that challenges me. Lord, do I really live with the pure, single motivation that whatever happens in my life, whatever my circumstances, situation, health, sickness, life, or death, I want to honor Christ. Surely that's what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus. Surely it is but how we are so easily corrupted by the values of this world or crushed by the fears of this world. Paul says about his own suffering, he says, well, whether I'm free or whether I'm in prison under arrest, I'm not going to let either one of them control me because either way it serves to spread the gospel. He's indifferent to it. Not that he doesn't care, not that he doesn't have a preference, but he's saying, whichever way it is, that will not be what controls me. It's honoring Christ and seeing the gospel advanced. He says about his own, like we've just read, his own life. Whether I live or whether I die, I'm not going to let that control me because it's to do with God allowing me to do even more fruitful work for him on behalf of this church, these people I love in Philippi, for example. I will not let it control me. I want to honor Christ. 
And then crucially, he says, and very relevantly to us, I think, at the moment in, in our lives, he talks about uh, money. Now, remember, Epaphroditus has actually brought money to him because he needed support there in, in, in prison. And he waits to the end of the epistle before he even mentions this, and he says, thank you. I'm really grateful. It's supplied all my needs. But actually, he's not dismissive, but he's very, it's very interesting, his comments. He says, but actually, it's really good for you that you've given it. God will bless you. God will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. God will meet your needs. Yeah, you've helped meet my needs, but listen, I have learned a secret. I've learned something that's absolutely essential in life, that whether I have nothing or whether I have everything, whether I'm in poverty or riches, I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. And so whether I'm rich or whether I'm poor, whether I'm poor or whether I'm rich, I will not let that control me. Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's where that verse comes from, and that's the context it's written in. I can do all things with my limited budget or the temptations of a luxurious budget. I can do all things. Neither one will control me. It'll neither corrupt me nor crush me. Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Wow. Don't we need to live like that today with the current economic challenges upon us that we hear every single news item, morning, noon, and night? If you weren't already possibly worried about it, it's enough to drive you to it. Your children last week were brilliant in sharing about your trip to Uganda and their impressions and impact of the Ugandan children with next to nothing, but so blessed, joyful, content. I think that was a, a great testimony in itself and a challenge to us too about their attitude. I think we have a challenge as individuals and churches now, this autumn, this winter, this year. What are we going to do? First of all, with our own situations, our own potential anxiety or, or needs. And what are we going to do as well to bless, help, and serve those around us? What are we going to do? I think we should start asking or continue asking, what are we going to do? Help us, Lord. Show us what we should do. Now, just very briefly, and there will be more of this in the subsequent session, Jesus said, don't store up your treasure on earth where moth and rust corrupt, but store up treasure in heaven. Store up your treasure in heaven. It's always puzzled me. How do I do that, Lord? I don't know where the bank of heaven is to put my treasure into, as it were. What do I actually do? So I looked at it again, and this isn't the full answer, but I'll just leave this with you and suggest it. You see, because Jesus talked about that and used that phrase in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is covered in Matthew 5 to 7 and in Luke chapter 12 as well. Because Jesus preached these things lots of times in different places. And in Matthew's ver account of it, 
When Jesus says store up treasure in heaven, he then majors on what it is we should drop. Our sister who brought that, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, um, Tatiana, you brought that, that really helpful exhortation and example and about dropping things. And do you know what I felt God say to me? Yeah, here's one to drop. Jesus said, do not worry. Do not worry. Do not worry. Drop it. Don't hang on to that. Whatever the natural, logical circumstances, that is one of the things we as disciples of Jesus, seeking first the kingdom of God, who God who will provide all that we need, drop. First of all, get rid of, get rid of the worry. Don't share in that worry that the world has, understandably, and which we could logically be crushed by as well. Drop it. Drop it. Just drop it and trust God. But secondly, if you read, if you read Luke's account in Luke 12, he says not just don't worry about money, don't let it control you. You can't serve God and money. He says then, but store up your treasure in heaven by giving generously to those in need. So we've got to drop our worry, but we've also got to drop holding on to our money as our source of security instead of God. This is the season, I say this to myself as well, to really ask God, what should I give sacrificially and with difficulty and pain even? Not to cut back on giving, but to increase giving. Now, ask God where to give. Bring all your tithes and offerings into the church first and foremost as the family of God, and then ask God, where beyond, Lord? Where beyond? How do I, how do I give? So the answer to storing up treasure in heaven is don't worry and be generous. Don't worry, be generous. Don't worry, be generous. Lastly, this could all sound very dour and difficult, demanding and hard. And like I said earlier, this is not the tenor, the tone of the letter at all. The tone of the letter is one of rejoicing. Paul says, chapter 4, verse 4, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Chapter 3, verse 1, whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. And I've just been pondering that recently, even before thinking about this word today. Joy. I just feel there's anointing, there's a, there's, there's a new release of joy that the Lord wants us to experience. Not just sort of make mental assent to, but experience. In chapter 1, verse 25, Paul says, Knowing this, I'm convinced that I will remain alive, not die, so I can do what? I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. God wants us all to grow and experience the joy of our faith. And I think there's something about just coming before God, like we did with the blessing this morning. Wasn't that powerful and good? Thank you, Mike, and the others for leading us. And that was great. But, but for joy. I'm going to finish with a, a joy-filled song. And I just encourage you. 
That's our response to God, part of it at least. That's our response. Say, God, will you baptize me afresh with your spirit? Would you fill me with joy? When God released me in, 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 the, in the Holy Spirit and with the, the gift of tongues, I ran around a marquee in the middle of a field in Surrey. You don't have to do that. You can if you want, but you don't have to. You could run around here instead. What I'm saying is there was something about the joy of the, the Lord through His Holy Spirit that was just powerful and necessary to be expressed and, let me say, is infectious as well and should be. Who would like some more joy? Well, start running then. Come on. <laughs> now, that's great. God sees your heart and hunger. So let's pray. Let's pray. And I've got three questions. As you, as, as you just hold this before God, worship team, let's have you back up with your readiness to play a joyful song. And I'm going to ask you three questions, and I'd like you to prayerfully answer them honestly before God. Not answer me, answer God. Question number one. Is your deepest desire to honor Christ? Talk to God about it now. Is your deepest desire to honor Christ? Secondly, are you trusting God with your money? And linked with that, are you trusting God to be more generous with your money? Talk to God about it. Tell him what you feel, what you want, what you need, what you want to confess. And thirdly, are you experiencing the joy of your faith? And if you like the joy of the Lord, then ask him for it. Ask him to release that by his Holy Spirit to you more and more. Lord, thank you that you hear our prayers and you love us, your children, and you, like we received earlier in this meeting, you want to always bless us. And we just so love you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.